Today starts a series called Deconstructing Doubt. This is, this is really ta- targeted to somebody who either is not sure they believe all of this, and they have some doubts. Maybe they grew up in church, maybe they didn't, but they have some doubts about stuff. We want to help people wrestle with those and deconstruct those doubts. But also for people who believe it's true, and they just aren't sure they know all the reasons why. They don't have all that confidence about that. And so we want to come alongside you and give you some real confidence in, in your faith so that you don't have those doubts glaring at you. But mostly, we want to celebrate Jesus, and to do it today, we're going to look through the eyes of one of his skeptics, one of his opponents, really, who became an eyewitness of the resurrection, the Apostle Paul. Now, today, I I know I say this about half the time, which says a lot more about me than anything else, but today's a little bit of a weird message. Somebody said the other day to me, you know, you say that like half the time. Maybe you're just a weird guy. Well, that's possible. It's possible. But today's a little bit of a weird message. So somewhere along the line... Uh, some of you are going to wonder if I've missed the runway. You know, I just flew past it and I'm heading to Toledo or something. I'm going to land the plane. Just stay with me. And so you're going to have to have a little more trust maybe than normal, but we'll get there. All right. That's a fair deal. Like I'm going to land it and you're going to, okay, good. So to start with, I want to tell you about a book that was written in 1978 by American astrophysicist, Michael Hart. It's called the 100 where he ranks the top 100 most influential people in history. Fascinating idea. I don't know even how you know where you'd start getting the, the compilation of that. But he didn't characterize them based on if they were good or bad or not, just based on if they're influential. Did they move the needle of society? So, for instance, Adolf Hitler is ranked number 39, even though he was a terrible person. He was really impactful for culture. He, he put the whole world into war. So even though he's terrible, he's on the list. Genghis Khan is 29. He's a sweet guy, uh, really kind of a bad dude. But he's influential, so he's number 29 on the list. So Hart's list was based strictly on influence, not good or bad. I also want you to know this was not a Christian book. So like, if I was making the list, I don't know who would be on what list, but number one would be pretty easy for me. Number one was Jesus. Like, Jesus impacted culture historically more than anybody else. And Hart's list, Jesus was ranked number three behind Muhammad and Isaac Newton. Now, no, no uh, you know, disrespect to Muhammad or Isaac Newton. I just don't think that's true. But my point is, this was a secular study. This wasn't a Christian book by a Christian author. This was a secular thing. And the reason that's important is because the guy we're going to look at today, the Apostle Paul, who was the eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, comes in at number six. Hart says, Paul of Tarsus was the sixth most influential person in history. He ranks ahead of every American president. Uh, there's three on the list. I noticed that Abe Lincoln's not on the list. Abe Lincoln, by the way, mentioned, made honorable mention. Not sure how John Kennedy passes Abe Lincoln, but that's probably a subject for another discussion. Uh, the Apostle Paul came in ahead of every inventor except for Isaac Newton. Apostle Paul came in ahead of every Roman emperor, which is ironic because Nero didn't make the list, and yet he had him beheaded. So it's a little bit, a little bit ironic there. The Apostle Paul, by any standard, had great impact in our world. And we know a little bit about him. If you don't know much about him, let me give you a little bit of information about him. We know that he was born in Tarsus. He was he raised in Jerusalem, grew up in Jerusalem. He was about the same age as Jesus, maybe a little bit younger, but a very different upbringing. Where Jesus grew up, impoverished parents uh, didn't have a lot of breaks, you know, society wise. Paul would have been brought up in a pretty upward mobile situation. He trained under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel in Jerusalem, basically getting an Ivy League education for his day. Like this, Paul got all the breaks. And we don't read about him in the book of in the Bible until we get to the book of Acts. 
But he would have certainly been right there, raised in Jerusalem, underneath Gamaliel's tutelage. He would have almost certainly been right in the middle of all the action when Jesus was arrested, beaten, tried, crucified, and resurrection. Paul would have been there for all of that because he would have been with Gamaliel as Gamaliel was right in the center of the action. So we don't know for sure, but I think it's pretty easy to see that he probably would have been there a lot of the times Gamaliel was there. Like when Gamaliel spoke to the Sanhedrin about the apostles in Acts 5, Peter declared that that God raised Jesus from the dead, and Gamaliel got up to speak to the Sanhedrin, and he said, when they heard this, when the Sanhedrin heard that Peter say God raised him from the dead, they were furious, and they wanted to put Peter and the others to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Now, if you don't know anything about the Sanhedrin, it was a a board, a, a court, if you will, 71 religious scholars who made decisions not just about religious things, they made decisions about all kinds of things. They, they had a lot of judicial power, political authority, and they could, they could decide if a person was in prison or not, if they were killed or not. They had a lot of a power. And so Gamaliel gets up and says, listen, we, we took the leader out, we killed Jesus, right? So if this is not from God, it's going to go away. But if it is from God, it, you're going to find yourself fighting against God. And he brings up a couple of standards of people who had, who had risen up, the leader had been taken out, and then the group went away. He says, so therefore, in the present case of Jesus, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activities of human origin, it'll fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. And his speech persuaded them. Now, if you're not sure you believe in this, I've always thought that was a pretty good standard. Like, if, if this is not from God, why did it have the legs that it did? Why, when the leader was taken out and killed, why did the, the, the movement actually grow far beyond what it was when he was there? So Gamaliel's speech persuaded them, but it must not have persuaded Paul. Because in Acts 8, it says, Saul began to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging off both men and women to put them in prison. And he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, I don't want to confuse anybody. Sometimes people get confused about, is it Paul? Is it Saul? Did he switch his name? What, what's going on with that? Saul was his Hebrew name. So probably named after the first king, Jewish king, Saul. But he also had a Greek and Latin name, Paul. And since he typically worked in uh, Roman Greek areas, he often in scripture goes by the name Paul. But it's the same guy. Don't get confused by that. So Paul sends to the high priest and asks for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if any are found there who belong to the way, who are Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners also to Jerusalem. But as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. This is really important you catch this. So Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He didn't have a vision. He didn't have a hallucination. He didn't have a dream. He met a person, a living person who he had very likely seen be killed just a short time before. He goes on to say in verse 8 that Saul got up from the ground. When he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. I've titled this message Three Days because these three days that we're going to look at here in the life of Paul really changed the whole world. For three days he didn't didn't eat, he didn't drink, 
He was blind, probably didn't sleep much, if at all. But for three days, he would just rack his brain about everything he could think of about Jesus. All the times he had seen him, all the stories he had heard, all the things that had happened around his death. I mean, he, he would have remembered the veil being torn and the earthquake that happened at the same time as the crucifixion. He would have remembered the stories about him being appearing to people and all those things. And as an understudy of Gamaliel, he probably would have been there for so many events as their lives ran parallel to one another. I want to show these to you. I don't, want, I don't want you to lose track of them. So if you have a Bible or if you want to grab one from your seats, grab that out and turn to Matthew 26. I want to warn you, I'm going to look at a few verses here in Matthew 26. So some of you are thinking right now, I'll just, I'll just listen. You're, you're going to feel a little lost. So grab a Bible. We'd love to give you one. If you forgot to give your kids Easter candy, give them a Bible. Take it with you and give them a Bible. They won't like it as much as candy. Blame it on me. That's all fine. Matthew 26, page 679. And the Bible's there in your seats. If you want to look at those. I want to look at a few different verses together. These are, what I want you to see is, even though Paul's name's not mentioned, he probably would have been there along the way as Jesus was arrested and tried and crucified. And I think his story then is an interesting point because he's an eyewitness to Jesus rising from the dead. So whether you're a believer or a skeptic, I think this is a powerful story for us to consider. Matthew 26, page 679. Look with me first at verse 57, top right of the page if you're using these Bibles. It says, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So Gamaliel would have been one of the teachers of the law and elders. He would have been there certainly. And I think Paul, as his understudy, probably would have been there also. So as the night begins on Thursday night, Paul's probably right there. Verse 59 says, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. And I just picture Paul at this point working the crowd. Like he's going out and talking to people, trying to say, well, do you know anything about Jesus? Did he ever say anything to you? Did you ever hear him say something contrary to the law? And he's trying to kind of work the crowd to get them to say something condemning towards Jesus. Look at verse 63. Since the high priest says to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Now that verse doesn't mean a lot to us. That doesn't jump out at you very likely. But when the Jewish leaders heard that verse, they would have thought immediately to Daniel 7. You can look at this later. Daniel gives a prophecy hundreds of years earlier that the son of man would be the son of God, calls him the son of man, and you'll see him riding on the clouds of heaven. So when Jesus says this, he was clearly saying that he's God, just like Daniel had prophesied. So verse 65, the high priest freaks out. He te tears his clothes and says he's spoken blasphemy. He said he's God, so why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all answered, they probably including Paul, they all answered he's worthy of death. And then they, maybe Paul, spit in his face, struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? So we don't know, but Paul was so passionate. I don't think it's a stretch at all to think that Paul would have been the ones going up and hitting Jesus or slapping him or spitting in his face. And it's so amazing that when you think about where his life would go, that his life had that intersection along the way. 
Go to the next page, verse 20, chapter 27, verse 1. It says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Was Paul part of those conversations? I, I think he probably would have been. Gamaliel would have been. I think he would have been. Verse 11 says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. And when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, Jesus gave no answer because he wasn't trying to talk him out of anything. He was willingly going to the cross. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. I'm sure the governor wasn't used to that at all. Normally, people are begging for mercy or defending themselves. Jesus did none of it. Now, it's the governor's custom, verse 15, at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of their self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. I'd love to see the footage of that one day in heaven, to see what Pilate's wife had experienced. It says, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd, was Paul part of that? Probably. For Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah, he asked. Crucify him. What, cri what crime has he committed? Crucify him, they said all the louder. I think Paul was probably part of that. Paul would have been in the crowd yelling out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. And I imagine during those three days, he's wrestling with all the scenes that he saw, including hearing his own voice and his hand shouting, crucify him. Verse 25 says, all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And then they released Barabbas to him, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Paul would have heard his own voice say, his blood is on us and on our children. Can you imagine what those three days were like when he's wrestling with the, the reality of what he's done? One, one little detail that, that Matthew doesn't include, the last one I'll look at, comes from Luke, where in Luke 23, it says, when they had came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saved others, let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The rulers sneered at Jesus. Was Paul among those? I think he probably was. When Jesus looked from the cross and, and said, Father, forgive them, I, I envision, I don't know, I envision Jesus kind of peering across the crowd as he, as he said those words to God. Was Paul in that crowd? I think probably so. Did they have a moment where they locked eyes? I think they probably did. And now Paul's thinking through the, the list of all that he's done, and he would have included that vision of Jesus looking in his eyes from on the crowd saying, God, forgive him. He doesn't even know what he's doing. I mean, Paul had so many reasons, so many things to, to think through. He was likely there for all. In fact, look at this list here. Paul conspired against him, spat on him, slapped him, punched him, yelled, crucify him, sneered, and mocked him. It's quite a list. I mean, what would happen if we were to talk to people who know you well and ask for your list? 
the worst things you've ever done, the worst things you were ever part of, and, and brought them in and put them up on the screens for everybody to look at. Had, may had you stand up here with me and said, here's their list. Here's all the worst things they've ever done. I talked to their husband. I talked to their wife. This is as bad as it gets. Like if I, if I were to do that, what kind of list would you have on there? One of the reasons Paul was so influential is he didn't run away from his list. His list is not just put on a screen in church. His list is written in the best-selling book in all of history. And he certainly would have, during those three days, been racking his brain thinking about this and so many more things that he's done to push God away. It must have been overwhelming for him. Must have been overwhelming. But he didn't run from his list, and because of that, he became influential. He very likely had Jesus' blood on his hands, figuratively at least, but maybe literally, from times that he punched him or slapped him. And now a few months later, maybe a year or two later, he's in Damascus, blind, fasting, three days in prayer, thinking about all of these events, of all the times he had seen Jesus. Acts 9 says Ananias comes to the house there in Damascus and enters it, and he placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and was baptized. I've been praying this week that scales would fall from eyes this weekend. That you would think about God and anew and you would, you would allow those things to sink in. You'd really see the Lord as if for the first time. I titled this message Three Days because a lot can happen in three days. You know, in three days... Jonah went from a rebellious prophet to a faithful preacher. Three days. In three days, Paul goes from breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's people to declaring that Jesus is alive and king and savior of the world in just three days. And of course, in three days, Jesus goes from being defeated by death to being a defeater of death in just three days. Jesus' death showed us that he was human, but his resurrection showed us he was divine. And Paul would have certainly been thinking about that for three days as he wrestled with all the things that he had seen and experienced. Now, if Paul, if Paul can spend three days thinking about that, as many things as he had done, as far away as he had ran from God, what would happen if you gave three days to really considering if this is true or not? I mean, if you just called into work tomorrow and Tuesday and said, you know what, I got to take three days and just, and just deal with it. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to sleep. Just 24 hours a day. I'm just going to focus on that. I think you'd really come to a lot of conclusions about this most important issue. Problem is most of us can't do that, right? Your kids are still going to want to eat. They're going to get cranky if you don't feed them. You're still going to have to go to work. Your boss doesn't let you off. There's all kinds of problems. That's why Paul had to be blinded probably to get his attention because otherwise we're not going to take three days to do something like that. So let me give you a more realistic challenge. What if you took 72 hours, three days, and just spent that over the next couple of weeks deciding if this most important thing is true? Because if, if this is true, if by his death he showed us he was human and by his resurrection he showed us his divine, then there's nothing more important than, than that. That's worth all of your 72 hours to try to decide if that really is the case. Hang on to that a second. Let me add one more piece to the puzzle, and then we'll pull it all together. In 1 Corinthians 15, there's a creed of the early church. 
And this would have been something that they uh, chanted to each other. They used in their worship services. They may even put music to it and sang it. And it would have been from within uh, weeks of the resurrection. This was early, early, early that, that scholars have found. And it's actually included in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I can tell you exactly how we know how early it was, but I don't have time to do that today. Uh, there's a seminar you're going to be hearing more about in just a minute coming up in a couple of weeks. If you want to know more about how we know this was super, super early, you're going to have to come to the seminar, which is totally a teaser. I'm trying to reel you into the seminar. But let me show you the creed because I think it's important. First Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Some have fallen asleep, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Now, I'm going to leave this up there for a few minutes because I want you to be able to look at it. This is a rallying cry for the early church. This would have been something they said to each other to, to stay encouraged. This would be something that they memorized and repeated. This would have been something that they, they sang probably in a worship setting to, to encourage each other. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And all the while, on parallel paths, Saul was going house to house, destroying the church. He was dragging off men and women and putting them in prison for their faith. He's breathing out murderous threats against the church. And I think those two realities are intersecting at times. Here's how it's true in my head. You know, Paul goes into a house and says he drags off men and women to take them to prison. So he he grabs the dad and he grabs the mom and the armed guards are taking him to to put him off into jail and the kids are off in the corner crying for this terrible thing to stop, yelling for Paul to please stop messing with their mom and dad, praying to God to give them safe. And mom and dad, as they're being dragged away from their kids to keep their faith strong, are saying these words to each other, Christ died for our sins according to scripture. He was buried, raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. It says Paul's going town to town, house to house, synagogue to synagogue, looking for any groups of Christians who are there following after the way and to keep, these, to keep themselves encouraged. These small bands of, of believers are huddling together and singing to one another, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried on the third day, he raised again according to the scriptures. And not only that, but, but he appeared to people we know. He appeared to Cephas, and he appeared to the 12, he appeared to the 500. Some of them are right here with us. He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And those words that he must have heard again and again and again, filled with fear, filled with faith, are ringing around in Paul's head for three days as he considers the claims of Jesus. And they're in his mind and they're in his heart for three long days. A lot can happen if we give God time over the course of three days. But now... We know about that creed because Paul put it into the text, but when he puts it into the text, he puts it in with an addition. Now he's part of the creed. He says, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Paul's part of the story. Paul's part of the creed because a lot can happen in three days if it's true. And that really is the crux of the matter. Is, are these words true? If, if, they're, if they're true, then it's the most important thing in history. If this is true, whether you believe them yet or not, if this is true, this is the most important thing that can be true in your life, that these things are real. Now, if it's not true, let's all stop wasting our time. I mean, if it's not true, you're all wasting your day. You should be off at an Easter egg hunt or something, getting, getting in line at a Texas Roadhouse or something. I mean, you should be doing something different than sitting here. And if it's not true, 
I'm wasting my entire life because I put my whole life on the line that these words are true, that Jesus' death is real, and that he really did rise from the dead. The problem in America, the problem right now in the South, is that a lot of us believe they're true, but live as if they're not. I mean, I've not seen it yet this year. I don't know if it's been out yet or not, but every year Gallup or one of the others, Rasmussen, one of the others will do a survey of American adults and they'll say, do you think that Jesus literally rose from the dead? And every year the number goes up and down a little bit, but it's about the same, about 75%. About three out of four Americans believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. Problem is, Three out of four Americans don't live like Jesus really died and rose again from the dead. I mean, what would Spring Hill look like if three out of four of us literally believed that Jesus was dead as the Son of God and then rose again from the dead? I mean, what would change in our traffic? Like, can you imagine what traffic would look like in Spring Hill if three out of four people really believed Jesus rose from the dead? What would our schools look like? What would the workplace look like? What would our life look like? What would homeowners associations look like if three out of four (laughs) Americans really believed that Jesus rose from the dead? It would change everything about the way that we live our life. The problem in America is not that we don't believe it. The problem in America is we don't live like it's really true. But I'm telling you, friends, it really is true. I think it's time we found out. Paul devoted three days. He didn't eat. He didn't sleep. He didn't drink. He didn't drink. He, he devoted three days to praying to God and exploring the issues to see if it really is true. And I want to get, challenge us to spend 72 hours to really devote to see if that's true. Because if it is, nothing else matters. We want to help you do that in the exploration. If you're willing to do it, we want to come alongside you. Here's how it's going to work. So today is the start of a three-week series. This week and two more. The next week, next week we're going to look at the cross, what really happened on the cross, What does it mean for us today? Why does that matter? The week after that, we're going to look at the empty tomb. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? If so, what does that matter to us today? What does that look like? We're going to talk about that. Next week also, we're going to give you a chance to get to know us. We're calling it a first date. If you're going to explore these issues, you shouldn't do it by yourself. You should do it as part of a family. There's a lot of great churches in Spring Hill. I think we're one of them. So if you don't have a good church home, we'd love to help be a a spiritual home for you. The week after that, we're going to do the seminar I was talking about. We're going to take a deep dive into all things faith and doubt. Whether you're a believer and want some more confidence, or you're not, not a believer, or you're not sure, take some time to really get that question answered. It's going to be a Friday night, Saturday morning seminar. I'm going to be teaching it. Uh, if you want to sign up for that, you can go on the app and sign up, or you can go to wellspringchristian.org slash sign up and sign up. It'd be a great way for you to get some, some conclusions to the matter, because I really believe if you'll look into it, you'll believe it's true. Then on April 23rd, we're going to have a baptism Sunday. We have baptisms all the time. People get baptized any day of the week. You can do that still. But every now and then, we'll pick a date out, and we'll say, we're going to do some baptisms that day. And it kind of forces people to make a decision. So at the end of these three weeks, we're going to have a baptism Sunday. I wouldn't be surprised if we had a whole bunch of people, 10 or, 10 or 15 more or more, get baptized that day. So if you've been needing to do that and haven't for whatever reason, this is your day. And you know who you are, right? If you've been putting off thinking about it, and you know who you are, this is your day. If during these next 72 hours, you're wrestling with whether it's real or not, and you come to the same conclusion I did, same conclusion that Paul did, that you realize this is really true, then this is your day as well.
As you're exploring that, we're going to offer a class. We're giving you two different options to make it convenient because everybody's schedule's weird, to ask questions about baptism, to, to think about what that means and what that would look like in your life. Because I believe if you give it time, if you really look into the evidence, you'll come to the same conclusion that I did, same conclusion that Paul did, that's true. We know for Paul what happened. At the th- end of three days, Paul heard Ananias say these words, and now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And I'm praying that you, over these next days, will sense the Spirit of God saying to you, just like it said to Paul, what are you waiting for? And what are you waiting for? You know, when, when, when Paul ha- heard those words, he would have had a lot of things pushing him away. He would have had all these images of things that he had literally done to Jesus. Slapping him, mocking him, sneering at him, spitting on him. He would have heard him, his voice say, crucify. All of those things would have been pride that stood in the way of him accepting the grace that was offered. All of that would have been shame that kept him from accepting the grace that was offered. Paul would have had his, his reputation on the line. His career was on the line. Paul would have had so much to lose. And yet when Ananias said, what are you waiting for? Paul responded and gave his life to the Lord. And I have to believe You know, we don't know what heaven's like exactly, but the Bible tells us some things. And one of the things the Bible tells us is that people in heaven can typically somehow see and know some of the things that are happening here. I think that's true. And I have to believe that when Paul sees Christians, me or you or any of us, looking down our nose at another person thinking they could never come to faith in Christ, they're they're never going to believe. They're never going to get get over their objections. They're never going to get past their lifestyle. When, when Paul would see us having that attitude towards somebody else, I have to think he's saying, how dare you? How dare you? Because Paul knows his list, and his list is worse than any of ours. And how dare any of us look down our nose at anybody else as if God can't do anything in their life? How dare you? And I have to believe Jesus looks down when he sees us look in the mirror at our own mess, our own doubts, our own weakness, our own sin, and think that we're too far away from God. I have to think that Jesus, with tears in his eyes, has to say, how dare you? Think that what I did for you is not enough. If what I did is enough for Paul, it's certainly enough for you. And what I'm praying that you'll have happen today or next week or the week after is you'll come to a point where scales will fall from your eyes and you'll see the Lord maybe for the first time. And you'll realize that in spite of all of that list that you've developed in your mind and your head, in spite of all those doubts and objections that you've put up to keep God at arm's length, he's never given up on you. And he's still there, and it's really true. And if you'll keep push, stop pushing him away, he'll accept you, and Jesus will forgive you for all your sins, and it'll be a new day for you. And you can sing with me in the church, all hail King Jesus. That's what I'm praying for for you. That invitation never gets old. you bow your head and pray with me. Dear Lord, I pray that you would just now with your spirit speak to this room of people that you love. And in this room is, is people who think they've done too many bad things. And you know that's, that's terrible reality. That's not true at all. 
It's garbage. Lies put in our mind. And you know in this room that people have shame and doubt and fear and worry. And none of those things are worth keeping you at arm's length. And God, you know in this room are, are busy people who have too many things going on to spend time to really think about what's, they're so distracted. And God, you want to push through all of those barriers because you love us. Not because we're so good, but in spite of ourselves, you love us. We're your children. And you paid a horrific price to bring us close. And I pray that nothing we do will keep you at bay, but we'll lower our arms and lower our objections and lower our doubts and say yes, finally, to you. May that be true of us. We pray in the name of Jesus.